0: Thank you OJ for reading for us. Uh, What we do at this church is we read uh, through parts of the Bible, we preach and teach through parts of the Bible and sometimes as we do that, often it's challenging but sometimes it's particularly challenging and particularly tricky and hard Uh, and this is one of those days uh, as you probably just heard OJ read for us. So let me ask for God's help as we come to this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray in light of Psalm 119. Well, Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray this morning that as we reflect on Jesus' words and hear his words and seek to live out his words, that we remember that all that you say is good. All that you say is for our bettering. All that you say is because you know best. So help us this morning as we listen uh, to hear and to understand and to praise you for your good ways. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there she was just uh, walking down the street singing, do, wa diddy, diddy, dum, do. She looked good. She looked fine. And I nearly lost my mind. Whiskey on ice, sunset and vine, you've ruined my life by not being mine. You're so gorgeous. I can't say it to your face because look at your face. Gorgeous. Some tay tay smilers over there. Uh, now, depending your music interests and what decade you were born in, you'd recognize those lyrics. Uh, Manfred Mann, that was like from the 60s, I think, so a bit older. Tay-Tay, much more recently. And you'd be glad I didn't sing those lyrics. Uh, but they're, they're just two examples of about a million other songs that are all about looks uh, and all about physical attraction and desire and lust. There's no doubt that what we live in is a highly sexualized society. And it's not just the music that we're fed it's the advertising it's the movies it's the tv series it's the billboards as you drive it's the signs at the station it's the bus shelters it's all of it there's no doubt we live in a highly sexualized society and our world says the more of that the better because sex sells right it's it's the oldest trick in the advertising book up on the screen is an old advert i tried to keep it blurry that's from 1921 And do you know what they're selling in that advert? They're selling valve caps for tires. We can take that image down now because it'll be unhelpful. Valve caps for tires. Sex sells, right, since the 20s. It's been the method. See, that's all to say our society and the world in which we live and breathe and work and play, it's highly sexualized. It's everywhere. It's it's pervasive. It's relentless. You, You can't escape it it's always there you just can't escape it unless you're a hermit you live in a black box and even then if you've seen it the image is still in your head and yet Jesus will teach us today that we need to deal drastically with such things Jesus will teach us about lust and caution us about adultery and he'll warn us like, like, like we just read that that sort of behavior leads to hell it's a big deal and there'll be a tension for us right because like i just said it's almost impossible to escape the sexual temptations of our world what chance have we got in in a highly sexualized world i think we've got none it seems but don't despair because there is hope Uh, which is a good reason uh, and a good time to remind us of what jesus is doing and teaching us in these weeks on the sermon on the mount remember what i said two weeks ago And what Cam showed us last week, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount will make us feel miserable. Jesus will expose our human hearts of sin and show us just how far short we fall of God's level of righteousness. That we fall so short of God's standard of righteousness. And this is a really important lesson for us to learn because we humans by nature, we think too highly of ourselves. Uh, by nature, we too easily think, well, I'm a good person. And, and what we almost always do is we, we point to someone else worse than us and we go, well, I'm not like that guy. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not like that woman over there. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm pretty good compared to them. And so what we humans do by nature is we love to create our own standard of good. And we, we've all got different like, levels and lines of where we draw our standard of good. But I, every person goes, well, here's my level of good. And you know what happens? Surprise, surprise, we always meet our own standard of good. We always get there. Because I'm a good person, right? We always meet it. And this is where the Pharisees and the, and the scribes of Jesus' day fit in. That's what they did. You see, they, in Jesus' day, they reinterpreted God's Old Testament law to make it doable. They said, ah, the Old Testament law, it says, do not murder. There's the standard, do not murder. Easy done tick I've never murdered anyone in my life I'm a good person or they would say Ah, the Old Testament law says do not commit adultery easy tick I've never cheated on my wife not physically I haven't had sex with someone else's husband or wife I must be good I must be pleasing God but like we saw last week Jesus says no to that kind of thinking Jesus says no not not simply do not murder do not be angry, is what Jesus says. See, we, we humans, we're so good at making up our own doable version of what it is to succeed in the area of being good. We go, here's the line that I like, I reach it. Good, I'm a good person. Jesus says, no, no, no. If you truly want to be good, if you want to understand what is truly righteous and to please God perfectly, then not just do not murder, get rid of every anger, every angry thought. Never again have an angry thought in Sydney traffic, on the train, at your kids, at your husband, wife, mother, whatever. No angry thought. Then you'll be good. That's what Jesus said last week. As you reflect on that, then you go, whoa, okay. It's a little harder now, isn't it? Do not murder sounds easy, or maybe not so much anymore, if it's about anger. Maybe I don't please God as, as much as I thought I did. Which, when you reflect on that properly, makes you feel pretty miserable. So you, like me, at some point today, in this sermon, will feel miserable. And if you don't, then I haven't done my job, or you've tuned out and you haven't been listening. Because this is part of Jesus' point in his Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to realise just how far short we fall of God's standard of righteousness. His good ways. But again, uh, hold on, there is hope. Uh, we'll see that uh, as, as, as Jesus shows us that, and that's part of Jesus' point too. His bigger point is for us to understand the hope that will come. Uh, so please don't live midway through the sermon. That will be a tragedy. You'll be depressed and you won't hear the hope bit. So don't walk out. Hold your bladder. <laughs> uh, so having said all that, let's look at today's section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're working through. This is what we're up to. Uh, verse 27. Have a look. Make sure you've got a Bible. If you've come in and you don't have a Bible, uh, stick your hand up and Cam will bring you a Bible. You need a Bible, otherwise you're just believing me and that's not a good idea. Believe what God says, not just what I say. Verse 27, Jesus says, Jesus says, verse 27, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus there he's picking up the seventh commandment so you know the Ten Commandments comes up in Exodus in Deuteronomy he's picking up the seventh one and we should recognize the phrase there from last week so it's same phrase as last week Jesus says you've heard it said but I tell you Uh, and that's the phrase that he'll use quite a few times in this section and remember in using that phrase Jesus is not having a go at the Old Testament he's not saying the Old Testament is rubbish no, he's correcting how the, the scribes and Pharisees and others taught about the Old Testament. And so with this one, in a sense, Jesus is saying, he's saying to, to the people listening, he's saying, you've heard it taught, do not commit adultery. You've heard it taught that as long as you don't physically cheat on your husband, wife, and you know, go have sex with that woman or man over there who's not your husband or wife, then you're okay. You, you're all good. Just don't do that. And you're good. You've heard it taught that way. But no, I, Jesus, tell you, not simply do not commit adultery, but everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And at this point, what Jesus says, I don't think is very hard to understand. It's hard on our hearts as we kind of think of ourselves in our own hearts and eyes and minds. But what he says is not hard to understand. It's, It's quite simple. It's quite logical. See, imagine a wife or husband who thought, well, I'm acting in a good and godly way towards my wife or my husband because I've never physically cheated on them. I've never gone and had sex with someone else. So I'm good. I'm treating them well, right? But I'm constantly flirting with other men. Or I'm constantly staring at other women, secretly thinking, oh, I'd much rather a piece of that. Secretly wishing that that man over there, I wish he was my husband. I don't don't think it's hard to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that God's command about adultery was not written as some technicality about physical adultery or not. It was written to uphold and protect the goodness of marriage. That's why it was written. So So that a husband and wife, they might rightly love each other. Uh, and be exclusive to each other, not only physically, in you know, committing adultery in the physical sense, but also in their hearts towards each other. That's the point. And this is, this is part of what Jesus is teaching us over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying to us, God doesn't so much care about your external act and the outside appearances. What God cares about is your internal hearts and your thoughts and your mind and, and what you think. And where you're at with that between you and God. God sees it all. That's what he cares about. And at this point in what Jesus says, some people try to limit what Jesus is saying at this point. So some women at this point might say, well, Jesus here, he's only speaking to the men. So it doesn't apply to me as a woman. Or sometimes those who are not married might say, well, this is about adultery. And that's just about those who are married. So this doesn't apply to me. Or some people will say well i didn't really lust after women or other men in that way so it doesn't really apply to me i don't have issues of lust you know attractive woman walks past and I, I i see her but i quickly look away and so i'm good on this see the problem is as soon as we do that as soon as we limit what jesus is saying here we become like the pharisees as soon as we try to justify how this is not talking to me and reduce what Jesus is saying to some doable standard of our own good we're being like the Pharisees. But again I don't think it's hard to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's he's talking about the integrity of our hearts and our minds when it comes to sexual desires. He's talking uh, to every male, every female, every married person, every unmarried person Jesus is saying, how is your heart when it comes to sexual purity? And if I could be so bold, when it comes to that question, not one of us in this room are innocent. Not one of us. We all have human fallen sexuality in this area. There is not a man or woman in this room, in this world, including myself, who could say, oh, I'm good on this one, Jesus. My heart is pure on this one. I've never had an issue with lust or attraction or looking at someone else. Never, no, no. None of us can say that. And if you think you can, can I just ask, how well do you go at controlling your eyes? Can you even control your eyes when that attractive woman walks past? Why do you look at her and not some other woman who's less attractive? Or how do your eyes go when a good-looking guy enters the room? Or how well do you control your thoughts when you, you desire that kind of relationship you see over there and you think, oh, I wish my relationship was like that? H- how do you go when, when your own marriage is perhaps feeling a little stale? Or when you wish your body looked like that so that others could desire you and find you attractive and, and, and alluring? And how much harder is it in a world where half-naked men and half-naked women are plastered on every billboard? Uh, on Friday morning, I was just about to write this section of the sermon, and I was checking the uh, Formula One highlights. Nerdy, I know. Most people don't like Formula One, find it boring. There was a race last night. Don't tell me the result. I'll be sad. I have to watch it later. Don't tell me. Uh, but there I was on you know, the Formula One website, kind of see, oh, yeah, how, how did the practice stuff go? And on the right-hand side of the webpage, what was there? An advert with young women in short skirts and low tops. And each of the camera angles done in such a way to allure my eyes to it. Uh, and even then, I, I pressed a little X on the Google ad to kind of close it because I don't want to see that. It's not helpful for my eye and my mind. And then two minutes later, it pops back up again. <laughs> and it's not just a visual stuff. It's also the way we romanticize things. Uh, pretty much every rom-com, I know rom-coms are not as popular as they were five, ten years ago, but you know, we're of a generation where they were popular. Uh, every rom-com is a movie about a dissatisfied woman who lusts after another man who's not her current boyfriend or husband or whatever, uh, and, and thinks that he's going to fulfill her romantically. And so she you know, tries to hunt him down and there's cringe-worthy moments of humor all the way through. And then you get sucked into the story, so much so that you, you sympathize with the, the woman or the man who's, who's the adulterer in the rom-com. It's how our world's structured things. Or when you're flicking through different things to watch on TV, how is your sexual purity when the, the more raunchier looking movie comes up as a choice? Or, or the raunchier looking show H- how does your heart go in those moments what, what do you choose to watch what do you click on what do you, why did you choose the raunchier one and not something else see all that stuff all that con- content of our sexualized, sexualized world it does things to our brains it, it reprograms us it, it does things to our relationships how we think of each other, how our marriages or, or expectations for marriages go. See, sexual purity has always been hard, but I do think it's harder in our day because it's everywhere. It's relentless. All of us, in various ways, struggle with this. None of us can say, oh, Jesus, not me on this one. I'm good. Got this one down packed, Jesus. None of us can say that. So what do we do? Well, look at what Jesus says. And this is uh, point two on your outline. Deal radically with sin. Look what Jesus says. Verse 29. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell that's radical that's drastic and Jesus he I think is very clever because he's being literal and not so literal at the same time uh, please hear this clearly Jesus is not saying go and literally poke out your eye Uh, He's not saying, you know, go and find the nearest circular saw and, you know, kind of chop off your hand. He's not saying that. Uh, Don't do that. If you do that, there'll be a lot of paperwork for me, a lot of paperwork for the wardens. I'll get in all sorts of trouble. Don't go do that. And beside the point, if you poke out your right eye, you've still got your left eye. You poke out both eyes, the images are still ingrained in your mind. You can fantasize away anyway. That's not Jesus' point. But Jesus, he is being literal. He's being literal. It is better to lose one part of your body, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That is better. And we, we've got to be careful here. We've got to be careful we're not so naive and dilute what Jesus is saying at this point. Hear clearly what God is saying at this point. Sexual sin is such an offence to God and so hurtful to others made in the image of God when we don't relate rightly between one another That God says it leads to hell. And rightly so, because sexual sin is so destructive to people. It offends God and it really hurts people. And God does not like that and He judges that rightly. And so, what do we do? Because I just said that not a man or woman in this room is innocent when it comes to this. We're all guilty. Uh, it's, the old, uh, it's the old joke of the, kind of the young Christian who asks, asks the older Christian, the older, wiser Christian, uh, the, the young Christian asks, well, when, when will I cease to struggle with sexual sin? And the older, wiser Christian answers, well, I wouldn't trust myself until after I've been dead for at least three days. Uh, it's ongoing. We're all guilty of this. So what do we do? two things to understand about dealing radically with sin Uh, and if you've tuned out please concentrate very hard on these two points they're both very important the first one more important number one remember why jesus came god himself came down in jesus the son to deal radically with our sin jesus died on the cross to save us all from our sin, including every single sexual sin that we have committed. And that's radical. So radical. God himself had to become flesh, become one of us, to die, to deal radically with this area of sexual sin. And all sin for that matter, but including this area of sexual sin. We are so poor in spirit, if you remember the Beatitudes, we are so deep in sin that it took an act of God himself to save us so important to know that and therefore to praise God for his forgiveness of us in Jesus. Please remember, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that sexual sin you committed, that act you did, that thought you've had and will have into the future, that look that you lingered on or even just had as an impulse, Jesus died for that. Jesus died to forgive you of the judgment that comes from that. And that is a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing. And praise God for that because we are hopeless without him. You see, Jesus dealt radically with our sin. And if you're not yet a Christian, if Jesus is not yet your king and savior, he offers you that same forgiveness. You do not need to live in guilt of sexual sin. Jesus died for that. It's done. That's the very first important point. But the second very important point is that doesn't mean that we don't then deal drastically and radically with our sin see the christian life is a life of tension we're completely forgiven we're perfect in jesus there's nothing we need to do to earn our salvation or our standing before god it's dealt with in jesus perfectly we have his righteousness in christ perfectly righteous before god Praise the Lord, hallelujah. And yet, because we now belong to Jesus, we live like him. We seek to be like him. And so that means we work hard and deal radically with our sin. And so let me get very practical with you in this area. Let us think through what it looks like to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands. Again, metaphorically, not literally. Too much paperwork, don't do it. Here's a really easy one. If this... (laughs) Your smartphone is causing you to lust. If it is reprogramming your brain to look at a man or a woman in an unhelpful way, get rid of it. You don't need a smartphone. You just don't. Get a dumb phone. <laughs> You're one of those dumb ones that don't just makes phone calls. That's all you need it for. Get rid of it. Gouge it out of your life. You see, with this thing, you, you can be private whenever you want with this. You can be private whenever and wherever you want with this device. And it's not just the, the images that, that are accessible on it. It's also the messaging that you can do, the photos you can send, the videos you can send and receive and share, that the private and secret relationship you can build on that phone, on your smartphone, that nobody else knows about except that other person you're building a relationship with. You see, parents, be very careful giving your child a smartphone. Be very careful. I don't mean to be an alarmist, uh, alarmist, but the last stat I heard was that by the age of eight is when little boys typically have seen their first bit of pornography. And where do you think they view that first bit of pornography? Often on a phone, mostly on a phone, and not always their phone. It's, it's their older brother's phone or sister or someone else who's around them. That's where they view their first image. And why do you think that, that so many of our young, again, particularly mostly teenage boys by mid-teens, are addicted to pornography? And if you don't think that happens, I just, sorry, I'm going to be blunt, you're naive. If you don't think that can happen to your own kids, you're naive. I've done a lot, enough youth ministry. You go talk to Marty, and then you see that continue into men as they grow older, particularly for men they struggle in this area. And it is an addiction. They cannot control their urges. Get rid of this early if it is unhelpful for you and be very wise about giving your kids a smartphone. Get rid of it. It's the same with laptops. Get rid of them if they're unhelpful. Have a desktop at home. That's fine. They're more powerful anyway. (laughs) Have it in the lounge room. Everyone can see it. Don't let laptops be private in the bedroom if it's unhelpful. If Netflix or Stan or whatever makes it too easy for you to watch raunchy movies, then get rid of the streaming services. You don't need them. Cut them out and then you save all sorts of other owls to do better things. And remember that sexual sins and things like adultery never start with the act itself. It's not like in that moment you go, oh, that's, that's suddenly I've been tempted right in the moment. That, that's not how it happens. It happens long before that. It's the flirtatious conversations. It's the lusting in your mind. It's, it's looking for emotional intimacy from someone who is not your husband or not your wife or is someone else's husband or someone else's wife. It happens when there's too many coffees with that person at work. Do you want to go grab a coffee together? Do you want to go grab a coffee together? Just you and me? Cut it out if it's you. If your marriage is struggling, get help. And to the unmarried here, the unmarried Christian doesn't just wake up one day out of the blue and say, ah, today's the day I'm going to go and have sex with my boyfriend, girlfriend, or that person who's not my husband wife. That's not how it happens. It starts with unhelpful messaging. It starts with being alone, in private, too easy, too often. It starts with the message earlier in the day that says, ah, oh, the house is free tonight, do you want to come over? And when you have sex outside of marriage, that is adultery. That is potentially someone else's future wife. That is potentially someone else's future husband. And you're you're robbing that future marriage of its glory that God has given that marriage to have when we do that. And I could go on with lots of different examples because I know that all of us, including me, struggle with this. We live in a highly sexualized world that reprograms our brains to be sex-obsessed. But Jesus says to his followers, he says to us, I died to forgive you of those things and to save you from that way of life. So Jesus says, be radical then when it comes to those things in your life because I saved you from that. Gouge it out. Cut it away. And not because God's a killjoy, not because God doesn't want us to have fun. It's because we've got a distorted view because of our world. The best thing for sex is in marriage. A marriage where there's just been sexual intimacy between those two people for a lifelong marriage. That is God's plan. And if that happens, when that happens, it is the most beautiful, gorgeous thing. That is God's good plan. We live in a fallen world. It doesn't always happen. But we've got to trust God's good plan in these things. He's not a killjoy. He knows what's best. And brothers and sisters, I stand here with my own struggles. I'm not saying I'm above this. I'm not by any means. I have my own failings, past and present, like every single one of you. And so let us together be radicals. Let us remember that for the Christian, there is hope because we do this together in the power of God's Spirit. We're not like the unbeliever who can't control any of their urges. Yes, it's relentless. Yes, it's impossible to escape all the visual things in our world, in our world immersed in the sexual muck. But we're not alone. Jesus, by his Spirit, helps us deal radically with our sin. Don't despair. There's hope because we're in the Spirit. He transforms us. He changes us. I can testify in my own life from a younger man things have changed. And others can testify the same. So fight it in the power of the Spirit. See, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So pray to God, please help me in the power of your Spirit to have self-control. It's not hopeless. But uh, now we come to point three. Divorce and adultery. And three things I need to say as we start point three and the first is I cannot deal in this sermon with the whole topic of divorce and remarriage. That's a whole other sermon. That is a long bit of teaching. Uh, I can't do that now. Uh, And actually it's not Jesus' main point here. Jesus at this point is not teaching about divorce and remarriage primarily Uh, and we'll see that. I want us to make sure we're clear on Jesus' big point and not get bogged down in all our own questions. However, number two thing to say is, uh, I just wanna make this as clear as possible, I'm available to talk. If there are things that I say, or ideas or thoughts or questions that come into your mind that now you're wondering or worried about or convicted about, I'm here to talk with you. Just ask. Very happy to have a coffee with you and talk. So please ask if there's things you wanna think about and I haven't covered it. The number three thing to say is, isn't it wonderful That there are many who are part of our family here at Hope who are divorcees. That is lovely because there can be so much guilt around divorce. But divorce is not the unforgivable sin. We as a church family together are a motley crew of forgiven sinners. All of us turn up here on a Sunday morning, broken, fallen, sinful, needing the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus and knowing that we stand right only in him. What Jesus says here is that actually all of us are adulterers, in a sense, in our hearts and what we do. So we're all together on this. We're all broken and in desperate need of forgiveness. It is lovely that we have lots of divorcees in our church. Praise God for that because it's not the unforgivable sin. So having said those three things, let me deal briefly with what Jesus says here. Look from verse 31. Jesus says, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must, not gi- uh, must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, and again, there's all sorts of things to say about this. There's all sorts of debates about Jesus' words here, especially about how you read, except in a case of sexual immorality. There's two ways you can understand that and read that, and we have to think carefully of that. We can't do it now, I'm sorry, but I want us to be crystal clear on Jesus' main point. You see, this bit goes with the section before on lust and adultery. It's still the same section. So verse 32, if you look at the end of verse 32, it's still about adultery. It's the same bit, the same point. And remember, the Pharisees, they love to make God's word doable. They love to find loopholes. And so the Pharisees, what they would teach is, they would say, well, the Old Testament says, do not commit adultery. So you can't just go and marry that woman over there. If you're married, you can't just go and marry this other woman over here and make her your wife. You can't do that. You can't go and sleep with her. You can't do that because the Bible says, do not commit adultery. But the Pharisees would teach, but what you can do is, if you first go to your first wife, and write her a written notice of divorce and divorce her first do that bit first then you can go marry that woman over there that you like and once you're married to her you can have sex with her and it's all good because you've done the right process, due process and the Pharisees what they would do is they would quote Deuteronomy 24 to justify their teaching from God's Word and that's what Jesus is quoting there in, in verse 31. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24 Moses did say you could write the certificate of divorce But the Pharisees at this point are abusing God's word. Uh, Go home and read Deuteronomy 24 later. But, But the idea is God only ever gave that word about divorce as a concession. And part of it was as a concession to protect women from divorce. And you see that in Deuteronomy 24. And yet what the Pharisees had done is they turned this concession... This, this, uh, this teaching that God had given for the protection of women in particular, they turned it into a right. They, they turned it into, as long as you do this, it's okay. As long as you feel due process. That they turned it into easy divorce. See, some rabbis in Jesus' day, they would teach that uh, you could write a written notice of divorce if you were unhappy with your wife's cooking. So, you don't like her cooking? Just get rid of her. As long as you write the certificate first, you do a bit of paper and then oh she's gone and then try you find yourself another wife that cooks better uh kind of funny but horrible at the same time they would teach that easy divorce very easy divorce and jesus is saying no no to that you know you've heard it said that it's okay to divorce on whatever grounds you want as long as you give that bit of paper and then it'll be okay but i jesus tell you no to do that to do that is to treat your marriage vows and the covenant of marriage as rubbish. And to do that, and to treat marriage vows in that way, and to remarry under those pretenses, that's still adultery. That's still committing adultery. So we've got to be clear on Jesus' big point. Jesus' big point is, I'm upholding marriage. Jesus is saying no to easy divorce. No to that. That is ungodly. Jesus is saying marriage is for life and again I know that raises lots of questions for us there, there are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage uh, the Bible talks about marital unfaithfulness it talks about abandonment from unbelieving spouses so again if this raises questions for you please talk to me there's lots more to say but we've got to be clear on the big point. the big point is kingdom righteousness for the Christian means we stay loyal To marriage vows we do all that we humanly can in our marriages to work at loving our husbands and loving our wives and sadly sometimes there is divorce but for the Christian there should never be easy divorce never a situation where where we abuse God's Word to just do what we want where we go actually I want something new and I feel a bit stale in this marriage I'm not even going to try to work at it. Let's just go down the easy divorce line. Jesus says, no, that's, that's still adultery. Let me share two thoughts and then I'll wrap up. For one, to those who are married, the application here I think is quite simple. If you're married, be committed to your marriage. Work at it. If you want to protect yourself from lust and adultery, then work hard at loving your wife. Work hard at loving Your husband, they're the things that protect you from lust and adultery and pornography and all that. It's a love for your wife, a love for your husband. And if you're not married and you want to get married, don't ever get married lightly. It's a big commitment. Stick to that commitment when you get married. See, marriage is a beautiful God-given gift. We're to honor it. And if your marriage is not so good at the moment, work on it now. Don't wait. So many people wait. Don't wait. Don't be proud. Particularly men, if I can be a bit blunt. Particularly men, don't be proud. Don't be lazy. Jesus calls us to be faithful to our marriage vows. Divorce is not the easy exit clause when the relationship gets hard. See, God hates divorce. If you talk to any divorcee, they'll tell you they hate divorce. Nobody gets married to get divorced. We all hate divorce. And so you work at the marriage from the very early stages and you keep working at it and you work as hard as you can, humanly speaking. And during the last weekend of May, as a church, we'll be running a marriage enrichment course on the Friday night, the Saturday day to help work on our marriages here. And I really hope all our married couples will go. But number two, in our sinfulness, sometimes people abuse Jesus' words here from Matthew 5 in a different way. And again, you've got to listen carefully here to what I'm saying. Sometimes, not always, sometimes, usually the husband presumes upon the faithfulness of the other person in the marriage. And so they say to their marriage partner, they say, well, Jesus says marriage is for life. Look at Matthew 5. Jesus upholds marriage. So, hey, you're stuck with me like it or lump. it. Bad luck. And then that person does nothing to love their marriage partner. And that person makes no effort to invest in the health of the relationship and that person even if the spouse the other spouse comes up to them again usually the wife will come up and say look it's not our marriage isn't working there's problems we've got to work on it we need to do something often at that point sadly sometimes the husband will say nah marriage is for life don't want to work on it but you're stuck with me and they refuse to do anything and they refuse to deal with the issues And I want to say this clearly, that is an abuse of God's word. That is an abuse of what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You can't just say, marriage is for life. No, no, Jesus says, love your wife so much so that it's like how Jesus died for the church, for his bride. Please don't abuse God's word in that way. That is ungodly. No, what God wants is faithful, loving, Christ-centered marriages. And that takes work from both the husband and the wife. And sometimes you need to say yes to getting some help. So if you need help, ask. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's upholding, uh, upholding and teaching the greatness of marriage in God's plans. Again, so much more I could say, but I've said plenty already, and I know it's already going long for this morning. But please remember what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's helping us to see just how much we need him. Just how much without Jesus, we are just a miserable bunch of sinners destined to be judged by God for the ways we've lived. But praise God for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. Praise God that he saved us to belong to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And because we belong to that kingdom, we live in the power of God's spirit. And so we live in a way that honors him. We deal drastically with this area of sexual sin. And we do that to the praise of our God's glory for our good. And for his kingdom's sake. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, again, we know that all that you say is for our good. And we know that this morning, what you say to us is a great challenge because we know we fail, because we know we haven't been perfect. But Father, help us to then glorify you more because of what you've done in Jesus, your Son, to forgive us, to remove our guilt. But as those who've been removed of that guilt and now live as part of Jesus' kingdom, help us to deal radically with our sin. Please help us by your Spirit to gouge out and cut off those things that entangle us in our lives, that cause us to offend you, but also to hurt one another. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to be more like Jesus, your Son, and for us as a church family to do that together and to support one another in love. This we ask in Jesus' name.